This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The marvel of the century. The wonder of the world. Living photographic pictures in life-sized reproductions by Messrs Lumiere Brothers Cinematograph. A few exhibitions will be given at Watson's Hotel tonight, 7th instant. Program will be as under. 1. Entry of cinematograph. 2. Arrival of a train. 3. The sea bath. 4. A demolition. 5. Living the factory. 6. Ladies and soldiers on wheels. The entertainment will take place at six, seven, nine, and ten p.m. Admission one rupee. That was the advertisement from Times of India on July seven, eighteen ninety-six. It was a rainy day in Mumbai on July seven, eighteen ninety-six. A man called Marius Sestia presented the three-in-one cinematograph, camera, projector, and printer. He presented it at Bombay's Watson Hotel. He was the India representative of the Lumiere brothers. Of course, you've anticipated and understood by now that that was the day films came to India, cinema came to India. it came to the watson's hotel obviously i'll have plenty to say about the watson hotel down this episode i had been talking about the communication revolution in bombay in the last episode more particularly i spoke at length about the evolution of the postal services in the second half of the 19th century You met stately characters like Mr. Postwala, who had been a private postal agent in the fort area during the 1850s and 1860s. Men like Postwala lost their business, of course, with the consolidation of the government-run postal services, which took off in the 1860s and later. You also heard about the ways in which the humble postcard dramatically reduced the expenses involved in writing letters and about the increasing certainty with which letters were sent and delivered on time including the introduction of the weekly postal services between England and India during the early 20th century along the way I also briefed you about the pioneering role of the Bombay Chamber of Commerce which kept on lobbying with the government to launch the service at the earliest. Improved communication services were one of the ways Bombay gradually came out of the crash of 1865. Another major contributor to Bombay's rising reputation in the 19th century was the hospitality sector and the lively sociability it offered the establishments which provided creature comforts to the traveler from the mafasil 
or from England or the continent must now be taken up for special attention. In the 1850s, when our story begins, hotel life was practically unknown in Bombay. A hotel with tolerably good service was a rarity. Visitors by land or sea generally lodged with their friends and acquaintances. So I was saying that a hotel, what its name, was virtually unknown in Bombay even during the 1850s. Local historians claim that the earliest such establishment was called Hope Hall. It was located in Mazgaon and started its operations in 1837. There were a number of taverns, however, which soldiers, sailors or low-level clerks often visited. They did not have much to offer by way of respectability. The Bombay Gazetteer mentions names such as Parsi George or the Portuguese George. They were probably located in the Sonapur area, though not much else is known about them. There was a third called Paddy Goose, though once again little more is known about its origin, location or ownership. It is possible that these were not their original names, you know, Portuguese George or Parsi George. But some random visitor may have casually referred to them by these names, which over time tended to survive in popular memory. Anyhow, these eventually became the names by which they were popularly known. Dinshawacha suspects that the name Paddy Goose may have something to do with a small strip of garden within the premises of the tavern. Some geese may have been allowed to roam about there before they were eventually sold off. The Dhobi Talao area was heavily populated by the Goanese, who often reared pigs, geese or turkey. Then there were two other taverns called Rustamji and Godward. These were probably named after their owners. There was also the Great Railing Tavern at the Parsi Bajar Street, next to the home of Shorabji Sapurji or SS Bengali. Incidentally, and I'm sure most of you know this already, SS Bengali was a social reformer and philanthropist who had led the first labor agitation in Bombay in 1875 to protest against the appalling conditions of workers in factories, especially the terrible condition, walking condition of women and children. As a result of this agitation by Mr. Bengali, the first factory commission was appointed in Bombay in 1875, and the first Factories Act was passed in 1881. Be that as it may, on the whole, these taverns did not enjoy a good reputation or a positive, respectable reputation. Probably because they were frequented by lowly workmen who indulged in loud and vulgar revelries. But not so the Hope Hall. The Hope Hall was respectable. Mazgao and Baikala were respectable suburbs during the 1840s or 50s. 
European visitors who did not readily find accommodation in the homes of local grandees would gladly lodge in such places. In 1859, another hotel came up, owned by a Parsi called Pallonji. The place was called the Adelphi and was located in Masgao. The Hope Hall had managed to maintain its respectable image for quite some time. It had a special wing called the Hope Hall Family Hotel, which was located a little distance away from the main hotel. And here, in the Married Family Hotel, or the Hope Hall Family Hotel, the married folk could enjoy a degree of privacy. Within a short while, Adelphi would be offering stiff competition to the Hope Hall. Pallonji, the owner of Adelphi, was quite a dedicated businessman with a pleasant disposition and he paid keen attention to pleasing his customers. In fact, the popularity of Adelphi soon enough surpassed that of the Hope Hall, with senior civil and military officials patronizing the Adelphi much more than they did Hope Hall. So, Adelphi's growing popularity soon required it to move to a more spacious location, uh, which they found at Clare Road. And there, for the first time, an in-house restaurant was added to for uh, the boarders. The first hotel with an in-house restaurant in Bombay, I mean, was owned by a Parsi entrepreneur. Now, many who landed up in Bombay during the share mania would lodge there. Whether all of them made money or not, old Pallanji certainly did. He was also a shrewd investor and parked his money in lands and residential properties, meaning he did not indulge in share speculations beyond the point. One major reason for his success as a hospitality entrepreneur, apart from his amiable manners, was his flexibility. He did not always insist on immediate cash payment and would occasionally offer discounts or otherwise relaxed terms, such as delayed payment, to young and hard-up subalterns who could not clear the bills immediately. Pallonji was an entrepreneur with foresight. Some of these struggling young white men would in time rise up through the ranks, often becoming a judge or a member of the council, and liberally recommending Pallonji's hotel, Adelphi Hotel, to their friends and acquaintances which brought forth more business and a greater reputation for the establishment over time. Now, even where his debtors did not have the means to pay later, he never dragged them to court, and I'm talking about Pallonji. He'd wait for years for them to clear the outstandings. It was not at all a wonder that Adelphi did not take long to rise as the first major hotel owned by an Indian in 19th century Bombay. But... That was before the 1860s and the city began to grow much larger. 
There was uh, a need as the city began to grow larger, the need for larger hotels um, also arose. And there were larger troops, for instance, of visiting foreign performers, such as the first Italian ballet company or the team of Dave Carson and other theater companies. They required more fanciful accommodations. Half a dozen hotels sprang up during the 1860s, including an impressive one by one Mr. Watson. Watson had already made uh, quite a name and a good deal of money as a silk marser, hosier, and draper. In other words, he had an impressive shop at the southwest corner of Churchgate Street, where he sold silk fabrics and other fashionable textile and hosiery material. He now resolved to set up a well-equipped and well-managed first-class hotel, like the ones flourishing in the West End of London. Let's digress for a moment and take a brief look at what exactly was happening at the West End during this time. Indeed, it was the mid-19th century that really established the modern West End. The taverns around the Strand in the 1830s and 1840s helped develop the song and the supper evenings that became Victorian music halls. The bazaars and the arcades of the West End evolved into a distinctive form of retail. The departmental store, shows at the theatre on Lister Square, such as the Alhambra, became known for their exuberant spectacle. The West End was therefore a laboratory of mass entertainment that has shaped notions of luxury and fun ever since. It also confirmed London's status as a capital city. One spot in the West End became a space of innovation that remains conspicuous even today. The Savoy Complex on the Strand. This was the brainchild of the agent and impresario Richard de Oilicati. He is now best known for seeing the potential of Gilbert and Sullivan whose light opera shaped the middle-brow musical entertainment for generations. The oily Carter was able to leverage the success of Gilbert and Sullivan by building a new theatre to house their comic glory, the Savoy Theatre. When it opened in 1881, the Savoy Theatre was the first building in the world lit throughout by electricity. At the first performance, the impresario had to address the audience to reassure them that electricity was completely safe. Another first was the theater cue, which was introduced at the Savoy to reduce the disorderly scramble for tickets at the box office. So this is the kind of vision that uh, Watson had for his hotel. As the ramparts were pulled down and the Maidan area was plotted out for the residential purpose, as I had discussed in an earlier episode in the series, they were put up for sale through public auctions. Now, Watson bid for a large stretch of land in the Kala Ghora area. He paid 100 rupees for every square yard and set up the Esplanade building. 
which was called the Watson's Esplanade Hotel. Now, Watson was a remarkably original mind. He had the audacity, if you like, to commission what was probably the first prefabricated cast iron structure in India and one of the first few in the world. Watson had the building's skeletal assembly made in England and shipped directly to Bombay. Its final design was by the civil engineer Rowland Masson Ordish, who was also connected to the design of the roof of St. Pancras Station in London, as well as the Crystal Palace in London. Now, Ordish was based in Derby, and he worked alongside the Phoenix Foundry. Looking back, therefore, it's really hard to believe that the design was initially rejected. Not once, but thrice. In an interview with magazine Condé Nest Traveller, conservation architect Ava Narayan Lamba observed that, and I quote, When the Ramparts Removal Committee was looking at the plan submitted to the committee for the building, they rejected it three times. They wanted a gothic stone structure because every other building around the time was a Victorian Gothic building, unquote. Now, Watson, however, stuck to his guns. He kept resubmitting this design because he believed in it, even though it might not have been visually palatable for the RRC, it was cutting edge and was a technological marvel for the time. So, it's a very significant building also from the perspective of the history of architecture in India. The hotel was ready by 1870-71, just in time for the visit of the Duke of Edinburgh. Dinshaw Watcher fondly recalled that he had bought a ticket for rupees 20 for admission to the newly built terrace of the Watson Hotel to watch the magnificent fireworks, also probably the first of its kind in India, which greeted the Duke. When the hotel finally opened in 1871, the Bombay Gazette of 6th February 1871 had this to say, and I quote, Without a doubt, it was the finest hotel in Bombay, unquote. Its multi-level interiors housed a brightly lit restaurant on the ground floor that served exquisite European cuisine and had an attached entertainment room equipped with a pool table. In addition, it had a first-floor dining salon with another attached billion room and three upper stories given over 230 bedrooms and apartments, the uppermost of which were reserved, and I quote, for bachelors and quasi-single gentlemen, unquote. It commanded breathtaking views across the harbour, bays, and the distant hills. Almost every room boasted of an attached bathroom, a rare, very rare luxury at the time. A band of balconies wrapped around the building, and each occupied room had an appointed pankhawala, a native help employed by the hotel, 
who would mutually operate fans. The ground floor's colonnaded lobby had minton-tiled flooring, while the ornate cast-iron balusters and railings featured the monogram W. The monogram is visible on the balcony's railing even today. While a central grand wooden staircase made of Burma tick connected the four floors, a swanky steam-powered elevator, which was India's first, was available for the guests to use as well. When electricity was introduced in the country in 1879, the hotel, which was an emblem of modernity, soon incorporated it. And I quote, By early 1890s, the hotel had been fitted with a hydraulic lift and electric lights and bells, unquote. The hotel was luxurious and centrally located. The Chachkit railway station was close by, and later on, so was the Victoria Terminus. It was also situated near the docks for those who journeyed via ships. The proximity was very convenient. Whomsoever was a person of importance passed through Bombay and planned to stay overnight would prefer to stay at the Watsons. Perhaps the most fascinating and visually arresting part of the hotel was the atrium, which was a big hall, really. And I quote, The central atrium was almost like a conservatory. It was covered by a glass gable roof, supported on a steel truss and had mangalo tile, finished with a few skylights. So, during ballroom dancing at night, it would have been starlit. That would have been quite a sight to behold in the 19th century. Unquote. It was here that six, and let me come back to what I'd started with here. I said it was here that six short films made by the Lumiere brothers were screened for the first time in the country in 1896. Please recall the advertisement that I started with, July 7, 1896. That clearly was a pioneering moment in history, which flagged the arrival of cinema in India. Although the audience comprised mostly of Europeans and the British people, the cream de la cream of the Bombay society, there were a few wealthy Indians too, including H.S. Vatavdekar, uh, was better known as Save Dada. He owned a photography studio. Inspired by the Lumiere films, Vatavdekar ordered a projector, a camera and film reels from England. He shot his first motion picture in 1899 at Bombay's Hanging Gardens. He was documenting a wrestling game. It was documentation of that wrestling game, beginning of Indian filmmaking. So Watson's, the hotel. Watson's Hotel hosted, as I said, the wealthy and the intellectual elites, including legends like the American author Mark Twain. When Mark Twain arrived in Mumbai after disembarking the passenger ship SS Rosetta 
for his lecture tour in January 1896, a few months, please note, before the arrival of cinema, he stayed at Watson's Hotel. And he has uh, noted his impressions uh, in his book, Following the Equator, A Journey Around the World. Here's how Twain describes the service provided at the Watson's Hotel. And I quote Mark Twain. In the dining room, every man's own private native servant standing behind his chair and dressed for a part in the Arabian nights. <laughs> Our rooms were high up on the front. A white man, he was a burly German, went up with us and brought three natives along to see the arranged things. About 14 others followed in procession with the hand baggage. Each carried an article and only one. A bag in some cases, in other cases less. One strong native carried my overcoat, another a parasol, another a box of cigars, another a novel, and the last man in the procession had no load but a fan. It was all done with earnestness and sincerity. There was not a smile in the procession, from the head of it to the tail of it. Unquote. Now, there's this powerful rumor that has stuck around for decades, which Watcher does not mention. The rumor that Jamsetji Tata was once rudely turned away from um, Watson Hotel's doors, since he was a colored man. The hotel was said to be reserved only for its colonial guests. Humiliated, Tata vowed to own a hotel for far grander and majestic than the one that had rejected him. Well, there's no substantial evidence backing this historical anecdote. Tata did indeed establish the Taj Mahal Palace, Bombay, which opened its doors to the public in 1903. And it soon became one of Watson's Hotel's greatest competitors. And over time, as we shall see, beat it. Watson's decline began in the first decade of the 20th century. The Taj Hotel trumped Watson's both for luxury and location. When the king and queen visited Bombay in 1911, the Times of India complained, and I quote, Their majesties will have no pass, what we can only suppose, is an experiment in garishness. Watson's Hotel, and that building is a good illustration of the dangers to which a sensitive public is exposed." Unquote. In 1960, the hotel closed and the building became Esplanade Mansions. In 2005, it was nominated by the World's Monuments Fund as a building of architectural and cultural importance. The fund's website reports that I, and I quote, after the hotel closed in the 1960s, a private owner subdivided the building into residences and commercial spaces. More recently, Tenancy laws have made it difficult for the owner to collect rents sufficient to maintain the building. After years of neglect, inappropriate additions, and minimum repairs, the cast iron structure is now falling and failing. 
a portion of the building collapsed shortly after watch listing. Unquote. Bombay owes a great deal to Watson, Watcher thought, as the pioneering owner of the first modern hotel in Bombay. But I have much more to say on this point and about the social life in early Bombay. Let's do it in the next episode. This is the seventh episode of our special series on Bombay. We call it Bombay Born. I'll see you next week.